so to give you an example um uh, they did um go to chicago online i mentioned that uh, i'm in a, a, yeah. f- a few shows back that i was meant to be going to chicago i didn't get to go which i'm still really yeah, annoyed you about go, you didn't get to go to chicago i know uh, the, the irony was not lost on me um <laughs> nor was it lost on the conference org- organizers who after i'd sent them the email making that joke it occurred to me the other 40 speakers have probably done exactly the same thing <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, this is like um, people with a double bass getting completely sick of everyone saying, bet you wish you played a flute. So... This is Bad Voltage Season 3, Episode 8. Hello, chaps. How are you today? Hello. Oh, living the dream. Well, kind of. Doing well. How are you? Boiling. But I think everyone is at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Quite hot. It is very hot, actually. Yes. Jeremy, didn't you say it was like 100 degrees or something? Yeah, it was 96 or 97. That's in Buffalo. Which, (laughs) yeah, for for New York State is quite outrageous. I mean, that's, yes. at that point, that's body temperature. That means you literally can't cool down. You can't expel heat to the environment. So if every once in a while during the recording you hear something that sounds like a SpaceX shuttle taking off, <laughs> I, I'm not suddenly friends with Elon Musk. It is uh, my computer over here just trying to not melt into a puddle of liquid just metal. Just Jeremy trying to resist heat stroke. Yeah, because like, <laughs> you, you hear a dull thump as he collapses to the floor and then clambers his way back up again. Someone runs in with a bunch of ice cubes in a bag, pours them all over him. Anyway, so what are we going to talk about in this show? Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're mixing it up a little bit, everybody, because normally, you know, we, we do a bit of news and, and, um, and then we get into a segment. Well, we wanted to talk in part two of our coronavirus coverage. We're going to talk about what is the future of the world going to look like? What is tech going to influence after this whole pandemic thing is over? We're going to get into the impact of a vaccine a bit, but we're really going to talk about um, remote working and content and virtual events and conferences and all of that kind of good stuff. And we really, we knew this was going to be a big one. So we decided to devote the whole show to it. So if you're not interested in that subject, then you might as well turn this off right now. But given the fact that you're all intelligent, handsome, beautiful, amazing people, we know you're going to listen, right? We do. Now, there is one other thing now, because we're not doing the news, um, mm. uh, that means that we don't get our little bit of music. And we've had a lot of people contact us about the music. And yes. so we didn't want you to miss out. Yeah. So here, here's a little burst of music just for you. Now, in the last show, we talked about um, coronavirus, which is obviously impacting you know pretty much everybody at this point. Um, and we talked about the role of tech while going through a pandemic. But in this show, we wanted to dig into uh, what is going to be the role of tech and the, essentially the future state post-pandemic, right? So a year or two, we don't want to get into when this pandemic is going to be over. It will be over at some point, hopefully. But whenever it, it gets to that point, what is it going to look like? And we, we, we thought it'd be interesting to kind of get into that. And we thought we'd talk about conferences and remote work and other bits and pieces. So... Um, you know, this is obviously ripe for discussion. Be sure to go to the Bad Voltage Slack channel and pop in your thoughts. But why don't we start with um, 
um, you know, I, well, first of all, we should talk about the vaccine, right? Because I think the vaccine is going to have a significant impact on a lot of things, right? Because vaccines historically have taken a long time to develop, but I don't think we've ever seen a case in the world where the the, the scientific community has been so unified around finding a vaccine. I, certainly, I've never seen anything like this before. Maybe there is something like this. Um a vaccine may happen early next year, like some people are saying, or it may happen a year from now. And then there's the question around who's going to be comf comfortable taking the vaccine. Because I've heard some quite reasonable people saying, I don't want to be first in line. <laughs> I will take it at some point, but other people can take it first. But what do you think is going to be the impact of the vaccine on this? So I was going to say, you can almost break this into three eras, if you will, right? You br break it into now, which is post-pandemic is, is there, and there isn't a vaccine. And then there's post-pandemic with a vaccine. And then I think there's also an interesting discussion about what long-term, well beyond the vaccine, kind of more systemic changes will happen. So that's mentally, that's how I break it into three parts. Yeah. Yeah, to, to the vaccine. Ak, you were about to expound on something interesting i'm sure well um Probably it's not. more that not not just people saying um i don't want to be first in line for the vaccine see having seen a bunch of polls as far as i can tell you've got 20 25 percent of people who just say they're not going to take a vaccine at all just not at all which, yeah i mean the whole anti-vaxxer thing is a very large conversation that we had, in fact, about four years ago. We, we did have about <laughs> four years ago. And I don't particularly want to revisit it again. <laughs> no, I, I do not want to, apart, apart from to say my views have not changed. <laughs> my views have also, in fact, not changed. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, this is really quite disturbing. I think the scientific evidence suggests that somewhere in between 70 and 90% of people would need to take the vaccine for it to be truly yes. effective. So. That right. 25% is disconcertingly close it's, to one of the bounds. It's <laughs> really, really borderline, which is quite worrying. And there's obviously um, yeah. uh, an absolutely mammoth uh, medical set of procedures and organization and so on required to get it out to everybody, right? This is, yeah. This yeah. Is, I mean, the flu vaccine stuff is hard enough, and that only applies to um, a relatively small subset of people but leave all, leave right. all that to one side there's a whole show in what happens with the vaccine itself so before it and yeah, yeah, after yeah. it what right. what do you see changing about that but uh, specifically for the technological world let's say rather than shopping well let's talk about conferences right okay because um i think conferences are obviously as we record this <clears throat> in you know uh in you know mid 2020 conferences have been massively yep. impacted they're basically not happening right now and i think that and be, while there isn't a vaccine this is going to massively impact conferences i think even there's going to be a there's going to be a um a trail over when the vaccine's available because um to your point you know not everybody's going to necessarily have it and i actually wouldn't surprise me if there'll be when conferences spin back up and there is a vaccine there may e there's going to be an interesting conversation about do you require people to be vaccinated are people going to have like i i i kind of predict that people are going to walk around with wristbands on that they've been vaccinated uh, and some people will fake it and all the rest of it but there's going to be an identity question around vaccination that i think will really impact conferences because right now conferences aren't happening and i don't buy this thing that like we're now in a world of virtual conferences and conferences are basically going to go away like people have been predicting. I just don't think that's going to happen. People love getting together in person. 
Well, now I um I ha- I don't think I've seen many people say, "Okay, that's it. Now everything is now." Um, me- <laughs> no more me- expensive coffee for you. <laughs> me- media- mediated through a web browser. Um, but I do think that what this has done has woken a lot of people up to the idea that you can do a conference online and it's not, you know, the end of the world. Um, before, I think, if you'd have brought up the idea of a virtual conference, it would have, people would have gone, well, yeah, I'm sure it would work, but it would be weird and I think people would like it. But, act- but actually, I think there are quite a few benefits to it so it wouldn't surprise me if conferences which existed before and have gone virtual during the pandemic will then go back to being uh in person in place geographical things but the barrier to entry i suppose for creating a new conference is lower if you're prepared to do it as a virtual one but before no one would have bothered because you say we're doing a virtual conference and everyone goes well why would i bother with that i might as well just not go, not pay, watch all the videos on YouTube when they come out anyway, get the same experience. But actually now, but now that people have seen two things, first of all, that virtual conferences do seem to work. And secondly, that we're starting to get a handle on the difference between a virtual conference and a YouTube playlist. Right. We, we are starting to see, as people put together more virtual conferences, um, there is some sense of how do you create a hallway track? How do you best run these things? Is it better to have a thousand people all watching the same video simultaneously? Or is it better to have lots of small sessions, which are a lot more discursive? Do you have a moderator for each session? Do you have multiple moderators? You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff which needed to be worked out, which no one had blazing the trail. Yeah. Yeah. No one had worked out before. And over the last three or four months, a lot of that's been worked up, frankly, by a lot of people trying different things and getting it wrong. But that's how you improve, right? But that's how so. you improve. And so now we're at a point where we are growing a body of knowledge about how to run a conference online. And therefore, if you want to run a conference, but you don't want to go through the, frankly, miserable hassle of everything that needs to be done to do an an in-place conference. You've got to find a venue and you've got to get stuff printed and you've got to decorate the place and you've got to move in all the audio gear and all the stuff you've got to do. You can say, well, maybe we'll do this conference as virtual and people won't immediately go, well, why would I bother? Because now people are aware that the concept is okay. What what do you guys think? I mean, have you been to many virtual conferences since this has been happening? Because I've been to two or three. What do you Um, think? What's... In your view of how been, good they are. Been to a couple, spoken at one. Right. Been to a few, spoken at a couple. Yeah, same here. And, and, and the currently planning a large one. Right. <laughs> what, what, what's what been your takeaway as an attendee and a speaker? Because everyone's got their own views on this. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that one of the challenges for me personally is when I go to a conference in person, I am not always working, right? There are sessions that I make a point to block off of my schedule and I go to the session and I'm fully there and I participate and I'm in the hallway and I'm talking to people and I am genuinely engaged in that conference. I think what I've learned, at least with my personal schedule and and things that I'm working on now, if I'm at a virtual conference, I maybe watch 10 minutes of one session and that's it because Slack's going off. My emails are going off. I have meetings. Since I'm not out of the office, and I'm not going to mark myself, I guess mentally, I'm not going to mark myself out of the office for a full day or for a full three days for a virtual conference. Just 
maybe I should have, and I would have had a different experience. But I, I end up just working through the conference. And when you look at the engagement numbers out of these conferences, they're not good. And I think the the realization is coming that um, when they're online, you need to have something truly engaging as a component of it, or people are just going to watch it in the background and not truly participate. Yeah, and I yeah. think there's something lost. See, there. I think that's completely well. I, I, sorry, I was about to say I think that's completely wrong, but not that I think what you're saying is incorrect. I think that you are going about it the wrong way. Yeah. You should, you're not at work. You're at a conference. You wouldn't constantly be on Slack and answering your emails if you were in a place. But half the time, you'd still be, <laughs> you'd still be sitting in the damn hallway. You wouldn't be watching a talk or anything. If you say, I'm going to this conference on this day, boss, you're not at work. Mark yourself away. Sign out of Slack. Right? You're at a conference. It, yes, I... So to be clear, I wouldn't sign out of Slack at the conference oh, right, itself. Okay, so okay, let's... Yeah, okay, but that's just you and you shouldn't do that, but whatever. Um, but I think... <laughs> I, I, I think part of the, the point here is, yes, if you are going to approach it as a thing that you have on in the background, like having the TV on in the living room just to provide some background noise, then, yeah, not going to get a great deal out of it. But in the same way, if you went to an in-person conference and didn't choose sessions that interested you and didn't make an effort to talk to people and just basically picked a room and camped out in it for two days and just watched whatever was on the stage while reading your email and writing code on the laptop on your knee, you're not going to get a lot out of that in-person conference either. Yeah, but to be fair, very few people do that at in-person conferences. You always have the small, there's always like that small number of people who sit in the speaker's room and they never leave it, right? Yeah, no. And they just sit on their computers the entire time. And I think the part of the challenge here is, I get what Jeremy's saying. I get what you're saying, Ak, as well. To me, the challenge here is, it's less about whether you're at work or not. It's more about, does the conference have the ability to capture and keep your attention? Because the problem I've got is that, look, I run my own business. I can take as much time off as I want to uh, if I'm at a conference. It's not like my I have to convince a boss and all the rest of it like many people have to do. Um, the problem I've got is that, Every virtual conference I've been to so far just hasn't captured my attention. There's been great content, there's been great speakers, but I've, in my mind, I've thought, I'd rather be doing something else at this point. And that other thing may be watching another YouTube video, or it might be doing some work, or it might be going and hanging out with a family. It's the caption of the attention, I think, is the biggest challenge that conferences face online. I understand what you're saying. I'm just loath to blame conferences for not being engaging enough when people are basically determined to not engage in the first place. If you've got It's their responsibility. I disagree with you. It is it is it is the responsibility of the content deliverer or creator to capture the audience's attention. The audience shouldn't be expected to do them a solid. It's the other way around, right? I shouldn't, I shouldn't be expected to watch a three-hour boring movie because I should give them my attention. The movie should be interesting enough to capture my attention. Shouldn't that be the way it works? Um, I would agree with you if this was a thing on a plane where you had no choice but to pay attention to it. But no one runs a conference and makes you go. You've chosen to go to this. Yeah, and, and by choosing to go yeah. to the conference... When I go to an in-person conference, I'm not... I'm not committing to going to uh, a session every hour of the day. No. Where do I spend most of my time? Yeah. In the hallway track. In the hallway track. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to spend your time in the hallway track at a virtual conference as well. This is what I'm saying about um, 
we are, we as an industry are starting to get the hang of how you do that. So to give you an example, right. um, yeah. uh, they did um, go to Chicago online. I mentioned that uh, I'm in a, a, yeah. a few shows back that I was meant to be going to Chicago. I didn't get to go, which I'm still really annoyed you about. Go, you didn't get I, to go to Chicago. I know. Uh, the, the, the irony was not lost on me, um, <laughs> nor was it lost on the what conference org- organizers who... After I'd sent them the email making that joke, it occurred to me the other 40 speakers have probably done exactly the same thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, this is like um, people with a double bass getting completely sick of everyone saying, bet you wish you played a flute. So, <laughs> um, and, no, and nobody ever thinks, I wonder if everyone else makes that joke as well. But anyway, um, one of the things that they did was um, they had uh, ton of speakers uh, well, I'm sorry, a ton of audience and a certain number of speakers, and they maybe do the session three times. Um, not, be- I-, I think some of it might have been, um, you know, track shuffling and one talk opposite another and so on. But I think most of the goal behind it, as far as I can tell, was to have a smaller audience for each uh, iteration of it so that you can engage more with that audience instead of doing the talk in front in front of virtually in front of 400 people you do it three times in front of 50 and then you've got the chat going and so on so there is much more did you record it once and play it three times or did you so you recorded it once they played it three times and you had to be there three times for Q&A or you were there for the EMEA q and I was there for um Q&A for each one. And the and, mm. and the talks were only 20 minutes long. So I didn't mind okay. sitting and watching it. Although watching yourself perform a talk three times means that by the first one you're thinking oh, that wasn't a bad point I made there and by the last one you're like oh man I hate the fact that I missed that bit out and that and, I, and that's horrible and <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I, I wish I'd fixed the fonts on that and where I went oh yeah I can't be bothered to fix the fonts now I wish I'd been bothered and all that but anyway <laughs> um, the, I the, get that yeah the point is that um, you can one way to improve the uh, speaker to audience dynamic virtually is to make the virtual room smaller so people feel encouraged to speak up, to have a moderator in there all, all the time who, what you're trying to do is to some extent surface the back channel a bit. Obviously, I agree with you. The, yeah. the, the back channel where people bitch about the speaker is still going to be the back channel because they explicitly don't want it seen. But if you're trying to improve the feeling of a virtual conference, the way to do it is not just to get a thousand people and send them a YouTube playlist and then go, that's our virtual conference. That'll be $600. That's, that's obviously rubbish and it's not engaging. I agree with you. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think what's going to happen with virtual events <clears throat> is that they will increase increasingly become more like unconferences because going to an unconference in a virtual setting, let's say it's on zoom and zoom have added the breakout rooms and all the rest of it. That's interesting. Like there's this little group of marketing people that I've been invited into recently and I experienced uh, Zoom breakouts for the first time about two or three weeks ago. And normally it's like presentations, right? So you sit there for an hour and what you watch these presentations. And then they did this like 10 minutes breakout. And for the hour of presentations, I was doing what Jeremy was doing. I was kind of paying attention. I was doing other stuff while it was going on. But when they broke out into the breakout groups, I had to pay attention right? Because I was part of a breakout group now. And it was actually really interesting talking to this, to your point, Ak, like seven or eight people, like a small group of people. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to go away from 
as much of the typical like shitload of presentations and actually go to more discussions and then how do you take the outcome of those discussions and share them with other people kind yeah. of like community leadership summit style stuff but like in an online setting yeah. i think that's going to yeah. be really cool a small curated group of people hyper interested in a hyper specific topic is something that i think online platforms in general will enable and are genuinely interesting right? uh, yeah exactly yeah. yeah. But this this bunch of webinars, I'm not convinced by it, personally. But there are a couple of other um, things that play into that. And one of them is the, the presentation quality, the production quality, doesn't mm. necessarily need to be as high because we've now all seen on the actual television news getting, you know, informed comment from experts, all of whom are sitting there, in their dressing gown, in front of a slightly collapsing bookcase and slightly yellowing wallpaper in their own living room, you know. We're, we're <laughs> but don't you think that's fine because we're in a pandemic? I don't know that when let's say there's a, a vaccine and then X date from now everything is back to normal-ish. Do you think that will still be the norm, or will people then expect higher quality? So that's where some of these people are saying everything's changed, and I think some of it is being accepted because there is no alternative and yes, nothing else happening. I agree. Yeah. So it's not just immediately everything's different. I absolutely agree that at the moment you have no choice. You don't get any production values, right? When um, even if, if you look at, I don't know, pick a show, last week tonight, say, right, which, uh, which goes yeah. long on production values normally, but at the moment it's John Oliver in a white void talking into a camera and if you're lucky he's had a shave <laughs> right it's yeah. um and yeah i agree with you that a lot of this is forced because you have no opportunity you have no alternative and i think it will gradually trend back up but i think the trend line for that will lag quite a long way behind normality returning because now people have seen it and realized that it's not terrible if you'd put on it take any show that's on television now and if you'd put that on a year ago, people would have gone, but that's rubbish. They haven't even bothered like doing the setup or anything. Now, I think people have at least to some extent learned that actually that doesn't matter that much. Yeah, but it's always been not terrible, right? There's always been yeah, the but, ability yeah, yeah, to, but, yeah, but to people, have like content. But people content are afraid to do it. Production. Yeah. Right. I, I, but, I but, agree but with pe you. Pe people have been afraid to do that. And I think quite a few people have been turned off from the idea of recording videos or producing content or giving talks online or whatever, precisely because they think, but I'll look a bit rubbish sat here in my second bedroom with the shelves covered in stuff. Whereas you've got other people who seem to be in some semi-professional recording studio and I can't match up to that. But now people actually don't seem to mind that much. When you're looking at, you know, as the Secretary of State is very clearly saying they're recording in his garage or something, right? How big a deal is it if you're doing the same? What's interesting to me is that TV and movie people throughout the pandemic have seemed to have like just said sod it to production values, yeah. right? And it's just, you know, yeah. someone talking into Zoom with like their laptop microphone. Like you see this yeah. on news networks. But what's interesting to me is that um the amateurs, the, the the amateur YouTubers have got incredibly high production values. Like if you look at a typical YouTuber yeah. today, they've got these incredibly complicated like setups and cameras and lighting yeah. and all kinds of stuff. 
It's like Reverso World. Um, that, but that's you- actually a nice segue to. Oh, I was going to say that. Yeah. It's a nice segue to something I wanted to talk about, which is: Do you think, and you can break it down into those th- two of the eras after this one, I guess. Do you think people will desire that more authentic content that is maybe a little bit more original and, and genuine, I guess, for lack of a better word, word, mm. but is definitely lower production quality? Or do you think people are going to swing, that pendulum will swing back to people wanting Hollywood block, blockbuster, $100 million productions? Oh, you see, a part of what I think is interesting is what Jono just mentioned about YouTube creators um, who quite often, oh, hang on one second, I'll do that. Um, uh, you, um, amateur, but attempting to make money be professional youtube creators i've often got quite complicated um professional level lighting setups and camera setups and sound setups and so on so yeah the question becomes where is the authenticity is um Mm. is authenticity um being a a a one-man band a one-person operation who's bought a semi-decent camera and a ring light that goes around it and two floods from the sides and a decent microphone? Or is authenticity being Patrick Stewart sitting on his sofa and not giving shit about production quality? <laughs> so I don't actually know what authentic is anymore. Well, I think that when you're, when you're, mm. when you're famous and everybody knows you, you can compromise on the production quality because people are going to give you that pass. Like Patrick Stewart could sit on the bog filming it on a Nokia 3210 and it will be fine. Okay. Because <laughs> it's Patrick Stewart. <laughs> but it took production quality for him to get where he right. was. I, I, as far as I can tell, not only could he do this, I think it's literally what he's been he doing. <laughs> I haven't seen his thing. But I think for a YouTuber who's like breaking into this and it's for a lot of YouTubers, it's a bit of a race to the bottom, I think. So, you know, they do mm-hmm. have to, they have to amp up the production values I think what's going to happen in my mind is I think there are there is a, a large majority of people in the world that don't necessarily talk about this, but they hate two things about the world as it stands today. Not all. Obviously, there's other things. I think the one thing is they hate politics, uh, which we're not going to get into, and they hate derivative blockbuster movies with tons of CGI. And I think what's going to be interesting about this hmm. is... I think we're going to see actually more of a spotlight on independent creators doing interesting things. And I think it's going to increase the audience's appetite for maybe some of that stuff beyond just Marvel Universe, cinematic universe type stuff. I'd hope so, because I fall into that group. I don't want any more superhero movies. I feel like you might be... um imputing uh, your own feelings to... (laughs) Maybe I am. ...to to the populace. (laughs) On the grounds that, you know, for for a world which apparently hates what you describe as derivative CGI-filled superhero movies, um, that world does appear to have spent $3 billion watching Avengers Endgame, which was quite good. Yeah. So- that, that, is, that is true, but I think part of that is that's all people are getting, right? In a world where you only get to listen to Beyonce you don't have the great opportunity of listening to Overkill, okay? <laughs> that is flagrant snobbery, Jonathan Bacon. <laughs> I'm not going to deny it actually is, okay? It, it, really, it really is, but you know what it is? It's also right. 
No, it's not. It's probably um, not right. Well, no, I mean, um, um, we, yes. we, we are currently in a world. We are currently in a world where you can get more in quotes amateur content than you ever wanted to before. There are a zillion podcasts in the world. There are a zillion yeah. YouTube yeah. podcasters and uh, a zillion YouTube content creators, and almost all of them are not PewDiePie or Markiplier or whatever. Or um, I'm naming famous people I've heard of, and there aren't that many. Last time I looked at the list of the top 10 YouTubers, I didn't know who any of them were. It was really worrying. No, um, no, I don't know any of them either. But I think Jeremy's question is interesting. I mean, what do you think, Jeremy? Where, where do you see, first of all, where is authenticity in your opinion? And secondly, do people want it? So, I mean, I, I don't know if it's going to just come down to authenticity, but I think to expanding on what both of you said and, and broadening it out, beyond our three opinions, I think there's going to be more room for both, honestly. I think mm. some people do want that Avengers Endgame massive production, and it's going to, there's going to be a hunger for it again because it's going to be, I think, a little gap because nothing's being filmed now. But at the same time, I think a lot of people have really been interested in three people that before they would have seen on the big stage or only in movies now in their living room just talking about randomish things. And I yeah. think... There's a lot of there's a lot more personal connection there, and people like personal conne connection. So I, I would imagine that there will be an expansion of both yeah. long term because of this, um, and the the biggest change will be in the smaller, easier to do things. Like that's already where we were going in a lot of ways, right? Technology already was enabling that. And I think one takeaway for me of, of COVID in general is for a lot of things, it didn't change what was going to happen. It accelerated what was already going to happen by years and yeah. just a couple oh, months. Hang on. So your thought there is that we were gradually moving in the direction of uh, uh, more stuff being uh, digital, more stuff being produced by a wide variety of content creators. Um, it's just that it would have taken us until 2026 to get to where we are now. But suddenly, because you've had no choice for four months, everyone's like, well, okay, we might as well work out how to do this now then rather than work out how to do it gradually. Well, I, th I think celebrities were slowly turning into personal brands where they had a direct connection with their fans. Yes. And this has accelerated that. It was already happening, clearly, between Instagram and Twitter and other things. They already had direct access in a way that historically they did not have. Right, there was a gatekeeper between them and their fans, and it was the, whatever distribution channel they had. What I think is interesting about that, I mean, I I kind of agree with you, but I think it only works for certain types of celebrities. Um, there are some people where, um, yeah, the fact that you have this personal connection with them that now you've seen the inside of their house and what they do on some random Saturday afternoon and um, the fact that they're friends with other people and they just chat about stuff. That's a really interesting insight into a famous person's life. You think, wow, these are actually real people just like me when you see them outside the context of the Oscars ceremony or whatever. Yep. But equally, this is what the people who buy Hello! magazine or whatever have been looking for for 25 years. Yeah, it's voyeurism, right? Yeah, um, and we're, um, I, I hesitate to generalize um, on behalf of YouTube chats, but I would say if you were to put us on the admiring people who buy Hello Magazine versus sneering at them scale. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the answer to this one. <laughs> I expect we'd be a bit more towards the bottom end of saying, why do you care what brand of toilet roll your favorite film star buys? But that's... Um, 
that's still is that not still seeking the same is that not still driven by the same impulse it's still seeking the same insight into the real lives behind the camera or away from the camera but I think it's not just going to be celebrities. It's going to be subject matter experts in general now have a direct line. And that, like I said, that more hyper-specific content now, it, when you had to fly around Earth to see it, maybe wasn't viable. But now if there's only 50 people interested on Earth, but those 50 people can just join a Zoom, they can talk about the thing. And the thing could be science or nature or it doesn't have to be celebrity related. But I think it facilitates things that just weren't possible before. I will entirely buy that argument, but that's also the argument for Usenet, right? It was the argument for Usenet 30 years ago, that there was out, out, fa- Yeah, but I think to use Usenet, you had to be in our group. It self-selected to people that were into technology in a way that yes. is completely gone now. Yeah, okay. But it was the same principle. Yeah. And, and Usenet worked, right? Because yeah. it provided a never-before-seen ability for you to talk to people who were into your particular thing yeah i think i'm I guessing think what, ak is amongst the group that thinks use networked until eternal september <laughs> <laughs> not quite that bad but <laughs> i think the thing is as well as with content especially is i do think we're seeing a trend and and coronavirus accelerated it but it was already happening where people like simple things that are done really well and i think a good example of that is uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. The premise of it's really simple, right? It's just him talking to someone about comedy. But when you watch it, it is so beautifully edited and created, and the music's really good, and you've got, you know, frankly, coffee porn, like slow-motion footage of, like, coffee dripping out of a machine. It's just really done well. (laughs) And I think that's one of the things that, again, YouTube creators have done, is where they you'll have someone just doing videos about photography or about football or about sound engineering. But what they do is they do their thing and they've got great production values, but it's simple. It's giving you useful, simple information. And I think there is a real appetite for that, but it's got to be done well. You can't just turn your fucking camera on. Well, kind of. One of the things that I'm not sure I like about this drive for um, direct connection with your audience and greater authenticity and so on is that it dramatically demystifies um what performers do and the reason i'm not sure i like this is because it causes resentment it does in me and i think it does in a lot of people because i honestly i think if you put jeremy in a car with jerry seinfeld and had them drive around and just talk shit at one another i'm confident it would be hilarious right Yes, and yes. I, don't, I don't think it would just be hilarious because of Seinfeld. I mean, yes, professional comedian, but I think it would be hilarious almost whoever did it, especially if you had all the really good editing and you cut out all the dead air bits, right? But at that point, you start saying, okay, so why are some of these people getting paid $20 million a movie to do this? And you think, actually, no, what they do genuinely is hard. And but it makes it look easy. The, um, I mean, we've we've looked at this a little bit with producing bad voltage, right? That right. a lot of work goes into making something look effortless, like you didn't have to try. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, we're, uh, in the in the in the old, I know, f- folks. You think that you think that we're not trying. <laughs> <laughs> we're a bad example. <laughs> 
in the old lug radio days we used to um we used to look at top gear as uh kind of a model for how we did things you know back when it was good um and yes you realize that it looks like it's just three random guys just generally being funny at one another and talking about cars but there's actually a ton of work going into making it look spontaneous even though it totally wasn't and half the reason the bloom went off the rose is because it started to feel staged when it was actually staged all along it just became apparent that it was so what's the resentment is the resentment that it it feels staged no no I, that- I, I think the resentment is if you if you build a world in which um a bunch of famous people make content which it looks like you and your mates could have done then you start saying well, then why are they famous and I'm not famous? Now, you know how earlier on you said that I was channeling myself when it came to the Avengers and, and politics thing? Two, two, two <laughs> I think this is what's happening right here. Two hands up on that particular See, I don't feel yeah. like, I wouldn't feel, speaking personally, I wouldn't feel any resentment to that in the same way that I'm a, I love YouTube, right? But I don't, I don't watch the most popular YouTube channels. I watch YouTube things that are relevant to my interests. And I've never felt a level of resentment towards those people. And frankly, they're doing what I could do, right? They're sat in front of a camera talking about their area of expertise. But I realize that there's just, to your point, Act, there's so much there's so much nuance and skill and expertise that might not be obvious, but it's there that makes it really good. The way they make their thumbnails, the way they tag their videos, the way they promote them, the way they do all this shit. Like, there's there's a lot in that. I don't know if people would generally feel resentment towards that. I think what it, I think actually what would happen was there'd be the inverse effect. I think it will actually inspire people to do that. I think they'll think if, if, if they can well, do well, that, I can do that. Which then, well, that kind of circles back around to um, Jeremy's original question about uh, authenticity of content and content creators more generally. Whether if you look at um, a whole bunch of people creating things and think, well, I could do that. The answer is then, why don't you? Go ahead. At which point, yeah. at which point, you then found out that this thing that looked like they just randomly filmed themselves in the kitchen actually took twelve hours of prep and a ca- and a, a DSLR camera that cost them two thousand dollars. And you go, oh, <laughs> that's really annoying. <laughs> and a crew of writers and editors and well, and, and, yeah, I mean, and, we and. talked about um, Joe Rogan. Uh, right. last show, a couple of shows ago, whenever it was, um, yep. say yep. It, it looks like it's just him and some random person having a conversation, but actually there's a little team of people doing stuff. And yeah, you sort of, as I mean, for a proper television program, you're aware that it's not being produced by whoever's on the screen, right? There's a whole bunch of script editors and best boys and gaffers and, um, floor managers and script writers and directors and all that who aren't on screen, you're kind of aware of that. But if you do the authenticity drive, but actually you're not authentic, you're just, you're, you're a TV program, you're just looking like you're some random bloke staring into his laptop camera, then it feels a bit disingenuous to me. But again, maybe I'm just totally consumed by resentment and envy. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think, I think what you're talking about is, in my mind, is, the difference you use two examples, Top Gun, uh, Top Gun, Top Gear, and Joe top, Rogan. Top, I actually, top Gun, good production values. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually think those are two really good examples here because, to my knowledge, and I believe this, Joe Rogan actually doesn't have any of that. It's just him talking to somebody else, and then he has Jamie who sits behind the sound engineering desk and you know, Jamie, pull up that video type stuff. 
But Top Gear is obviously written. It's obviously scripted. And they pretend that it isn't. And they, it, it's so contrived, uh, certainly towards the end of it. And the well, Grand Tour, I would include that, in the same category. That, that's the and thing. I it's so think- contrived. Now, <clears throat> in the early days, if you'd have said, I think Top Gear is all completely scripted top to bottom, a bunch of people would have said, I'm not sure it is, you know, when it yeah, was. Yeah. But it only really became apparent that it was when they carried on doing it and they just got either less good at scripting or they ran out of all the old jokes or whatever. It also just became so fantastical. It became fucking ridiculous. Well, we yes. should. I think Top Gear is an example of a bigger budget having hurt them, not yeah. helped them. Yes. Yeah, or, I agree. Although, to be honest with you, I suspect it's uh, more believing the hype or believing their own hype. Maybe. So we, we kind of talked about the ears before. And one thing that we skipped is what do we think? You know, we talked about conferences. Long term, let's say post-vaccine. Do we think conferences are going to all be online? We, we kind of started that conversation, and, and I had a little sidebar there. Because <laughs> uh, I'm also, as a sports fan, you know, a Bill's proud-ish uh, Bill season ticket holder. <laughs> curious after, well, they're not good. So um, <laughs> I'm curious to talk after conferences to talk about things like, you know, concerts, because you're interested there, Jono, or, yep. or sports events or festivals, just larger things. So do we think post-vaccine all conferences will be online. I suspect none of us think, but do we think everything will go back on uh, offline? Do we think there'll be a mix? I I think a mix. I, I suspect we will see. I, I, I am unaware of any kind of big list of all conferences that you could check this on. But if this thing were to exist, I would have said that in 2019, less than 1% of conferences were virtual. And I would say even... Um, a year post-vaccine, it wouldn't surprise me if that number is closer to 10% than 1%. Oh, so you think things are predominantly going to go back to the way they were before, conference I think people are going to want to do actual conferences in actual places, and a year post-vaccine, I think most conferences which are being run will will be back to being real world things but i think yeah. we I, I think virtual conferencing has now made an inroad established a beachhead in the world of conferences and it's not gonna have to retreat from that okay i'm almost on the same page as you act but i think instead of virtual conferences becoming you know more prevalent i think it's actually going to end up being virtual meetups i think uh, we're gonna have a, a number of virtual conferences and the retention rate is going to get is going to be so bad that a lot of people won't be able to justify doing them. And what we'll end up actually seeing is two to three hour, like really compressed sessions, more like a meetup going somewhere for an evening uh, is what it will be long webinars, but there'll be a mixture of breakout rooms and discussion and, you know, content. I think that'd be good because I think people will have an appetite for that, but not sticking around a conference for the entire day. So um, what do you think, Jeremy? So I think I'm somewhere in between you two in that I, I think my prediction is that you're going to see a couple of, of different things. I think a bunch of especially larger, hyper-large conferences, I think, will start to go away. I think they were already trending in that direction. So the under over 100,000 people conferences seem unlikely to, to return. I don't think they were financially viable before anyway, and this will just accelerate that. For other things, to take KubeCon as an example of something that I think will go back to in person, I think there will always, moving forward, though, be some kind of online component to it, which is almost like a tiered ticket, where in-person ticket is gets you this, and you can also attend some sessions and some of the things remotely yeah. will be a thing moving forward. I also think 
kind of to your point, Jono, but a little bit different. Because I think part of why people like meetups is they can talk to their local communities. Yes. And they can see what other people around them are doing. So I wouldn't necessarily... I guess I associate meetups with local. I think you will see a bunch of very topic-specific things that maybe go on a quarterly cadence because you know now KubeCon is a giant thing and you can talk about everything Kubernetes related. But if you're going to do a quarterly small thing, you could have one just about customized. You could have one just about a very specific piece of the ecosystem and you get together once or twice a year as the giant ecosystem, but those small niches within it could get together online easily. And because you don't need the, the density online is obviously going to be different than density in person. I think it will enable you to talk about those more niche things in, in a more compelling way. So I think you'll see almost a blended environment. That's an interesting concept. If you've got a, um, a, you, you can narrow the focus of the thing. I mean, and it's not necessarily if you narrow the community. If you look at um, look at something from the open source world, look at something like Destination Linux, right? They've they've had this um, twenty five people all show up and do a kind of a podcast together, video podcast together vibe for um, some years now, and it's you know it's it's obviously quite niche because it's a specifically open source thing but it's more niche now because of the sort of people who want to join into that kind of environment but it seems to work quite well and yep. maybe that's a similar kind of vibe so you can either be now so you so the pitch here is that you be narrow focused but there are a whole bunch of different things you can narrowly focus on whether that's topic or community or people or whatever yeah interesting I think so. Why don't we um, talk about remote working? Yeah. So I, 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 the, the the second half of the discussion, um, we've we, we've mentioned remote working a bit in the past um, and how it has changed uh, over the last few months as an awful lot of people have been working remotely. And at least some people, me included, have been saying for years – Remote work's perfectly fine idea. Why don't more companies allow it? It's really frustrating that they say, yeah, we've, we're building a company based on the internet technology that allows anyone anywhere to be connected in order to join our great company, move to San Francisco. <laughs> and, um, there is a certain irony in Slack not having been remote. Friendly. I know. It's just, it's a certain irony. It's irony enough that. You get anemia, anemia from it. It's but um, but, be, but being wow. <laughs> but being slightly uh, bigger picture here. Um, do you think there's going to be a long term impact on this? I mean, to give you an example, uh, in the last couple of days, only Fujitsu have announced that they're closing half of their Japanese office space, so they can have eighty thousand workers working from home on a basically permanent basis. Now. Um, Japan hasn't been in lockdown. So uh, some of them have been in the office. It's not like here where literally everyone's been working from home already and they've just formalized it. This is a decision they've made. But do you think we're going to see companies be more remote friendly? Or is everyone going to go, no, you have to come back to the office now just as soon as they can? I, I, I would point out as a, as a caveat to this that saying we're remote friendly, but you still have to live in the same city as the company is not remote friendly. <laughs> so I was going to say, I, I definitely think you'll see a trend, especially in places like the Valley and the, in New York City, where commutes are a, a little bit bonkers, to say the least. Uh, having work from home a couple of days a week be a thing that is more prevalent than it was. If you're talking about true remote, I, I think there will be 
some move to more remote friendly. I, I it's, this is such a long, nuanced topic that it's <laughs> like there's there's so many aspects to it. But I think you know one thing that Sid from from GitHub is big on is you're either a, a completely distributed company and 100 percent remote, or you're not good at remote. And there's a little something to that. I think well, you can be good at remote and have offices. Well, so but. two things about that. The first one is Sid is at GitLab. Not GitHub. What did I? S- <laughs> oh, sorry. I, bu- I did mean GitLab. It's a thousand degrees up here. My my brain is <laughs> melting. That's like specifically the mistake he would not like you to make. <laughs> that is that is well, correct. He, he could have said that last year. My, I think he would have been more and more upset by that. <laughs> yeah, since he's probably agitorious. But more importantly, um. um Yeah, in my experience, certainly working at Canonical, for for whom engineering is 100% distributed, um, and working with companies remotely and so on, in my experience, if you try and have a company where half a thing is remote and half of it isn't, half the people in a team are remote and half of them aren't, it doesn't work. You can do a thing where your design team are all co-located in the office and your engineering team all away, like Canonical does, or something like that, but... Every single meeting I've ever been in where there are a half dozen people on the room and another half dozen people on the phone just doesn't work. I think you make a good point because it's like comparing remote working companies that are all remote, like GitLab, to ones that are partially remote. Um, you're really comparing two completely different things because I think part of the challenge of blending together in-office workers with remote workers is you basically have to force those in-office workers to unlearn completely normal things that they would do in any normal office, such like as leaning over chit, to someone chit, and asking them a question, yeah, or um, exactly, and just you know yeah. agreeing on something in a meeting and not documenting it. Yeah. you know, like James uh, Comey after he had a conversation with Donald Trump. You know, it's like <laughs> you need to really kind of unlearn those things and learn a different set of skills, which is unintuitive to most people. And it's not just unintuitive. If you say to everyone, okay, you have to come all the way into the office, but then you have to do all your communication on Slack anyway with people who are sitting next to you, everyone will go, why the hell did I have to put trousers on and come into the office for this? And they would have a point. Right. Yeah. But don't forget, you don't like going to an office. Some people do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, But what those people should do then is go and work for a company where everyone's in the office. I think this, this, this is why I tried to draw the distinction because you can't just say, um, this company is half remote and half not. If half of the company is entirely remote and the other half of the company is entirely in the office, you know, and that division is by divisions or by teams or something, then it's fine. If you've got a wholly co-located team or a wholly remote team, not a problem. But if you try and divide a team in half, so half the people in the team are not in the office and the other half of the people are. In my experience, and I'm happy to be proved wrong on this, but in my experience, the people who are remote get left out of all the decisions. They get left out of all the stuff that's going on. I think it depends a lot on the company. Yes, I was just going to say that. There are companies that do the mixture of remote and non-remote well, but I think the difference is, is that they're incredibly intentional about how they do that. They, they basically bake it into people and it becomes like a cultural norm. I think what's going to be interesting coming back to um, COVID-19 is obviously companies, large and small, had to immediately adjust to working from uh, like working remotely due to the lockdowns. Yeah. And many of them didn't have those skills, right? They didn't know how to run remote companies and businesses. So I suspect that what's going to happen is as we 
as they start opening offices back up again, first of all, that's going to be a transitionary thing, right? There's going to be fewer people in the offices. They're going to be further spread out. They're going to have to do deep cleaning. They're going to have to, they're going to, have to segment it like that in, in, the, in the early stages of going back. But I think what's going to happen is they're going to basically have to start developing those skills. And I think in some, like if you're a, a small tech startup, then you're well set up for doing that. But if you're a large business that's had an entrenched culture of people working in offices, that's really hard. I mean, there was a lot of companies already weren't, th- like Google, a good example. Google are not good for remote work, which is astonishing to me, given the fact that they build products that are designed for remote work. Yes. But they yeah. they were of the view like, no, we, we get more out of our staff from having them in the office, right? And they make certain exceptions. So I think it can be done, but I think it's a lot harder than people think it is. And um, I, but I, I do think the remote working, what I suspect what's going to happen is COVID-19 taught the world, wow, remote working is actually pretty cool um, for people who'd never tried it before for their businesses. And I think it will open up the conversation for them to do that work. Now. And it taught people that it was possible. I think that's the point. If um, yeah. I, I agree with everything you're saying about how it's hard and there's a different set of skills and you need to bake it into the culture of the company if you want to be successful, so on and so forth. And those are a bunch of good reasons against making the jump to remote work a year ago. But given that everyone was basically forced to make the jump to remote work, whether they liked it or not, their choice now mm. is, do we go back? Do we put in extra effort to bring everyone back again? Or do we just go, well, we might as well roughly carry on as we are? It seems you to be You mean as in totally remote working? Yeah, because everyone's totally remote working up until this point. I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can do that. Because to Jeremy's point that he just touched on earlier on, I think there's a lot of people, they not only like working in an office, but they actually need the social structure of an office. And there's a lot of people out there who have been, who've really struggled. Like, we talk about remote work, like we're all in the same position, right? Like, we're all lucky. We've all got a separate office that we can work in and we don't have screaming kids behind us, right? Whereas I know a lot of people who were forced into remote working and they're sat in their fucking bathrooms, like hopping on Zoom calls and they're having to half homeschool their kids. And like, that's a tough environment, I think, for people to work in. So I think there's going to be a lot of people who are like, like, get me back to the office, please. I need it, you know? So I think there's two things to unpack there from, from my perspective. One of them is... I would be reticent about, I see some studies starting to come out about the productivity of, of remote work during these times. And I think yeah. measuring remote work during a pandemic when people were forced to immediately <laughs> not, basically go home and there's a global pandemic going on. So you're stressed out in a way that you're not normally, and yeah. you probably have your kids at home and are homeschooling them. And you know, there's a whole bunch of factors right now that don't apply to remote work at all. Yeah. So I, I'd be reticent about any study that comes out based on these times. Yeah. The other thing is there is the three of us us are set up very well for remote work, mostly because all three of us, full-time remote workers. <laughs> if you live in New York City with three people in a studio, because you're, 99% of your waking hours are spent not at your apartment, right. remote working is not a thing that's viable for you. Yeah. Because three people, it turns out, can't work out of a room without, as Jono said, one of them having to take meetings in the back. <laughs> yeah. So I think like remote work for 100% of the people just will, I don't know that will ever be a thing, no. just because a lot of cities aren't set up for that to be a thing. Like the density is not built around people all being home at once. It's built around people being on offices all day. And that's really difficult to change. That's fair, I think. I mean, I would be, put it this way, I would be extremely surprised if three years from now, the percentage of remote workers 
is the same as it was three years ago. Oh yeah, I'm expecting. Yes. I'm expecting um, a lot of uh, a lot of people to discover that they quite like it for all the reasons we've talked about in the past about why remote working is handy. Leave aside the reasons why it's not handy or why you don't want to do it. There are a bunch of benefits that it brings you, and some people will have identified those benefits and gone, "I want them." Some companies will have identified the benefits they get from remote working, like not having to pay as much for an office <laughs> or. If, if you're Fujitsu, being able to shut down half of your offices. Um, and so some companies will say, um, yeah, we want to do this. Or at, at the least, as, as Jeremy says, um, be a lot more chill if someone says, I'd like to work from home on Tuesday, please, because I've got a parcel being delivered. I need to go and, um, pick my kids up at 3a, uh, 3 p.m. Um, something weird is happening. Before, if you said, I'd like to work from home, a lot of people's bosses would have gone, well, no, we pay you to come into the office. But now I think a lot of people will be, a lot more companies will be chill about it conceptually because they've seen that it didn't crater the yeah. whole business when literally everyone did it. So it's not do you know what I think is going to happen? Do you know, there, I think there is going to be one thing that's going to happen here that we probably didn't anticipate. And that is, I think we're going to see a gentrification of work, working from home. And what I mean by that is, I think you're going to start seeing big companies who are going to offer these incredibly compelling, like, we'll buy you the latest computer, we'll buy you the gaming chair, we'll buy you the widescreen monitors and all the stuff, right, to, to set up the perfect home working office because they can say, we don't have that person in a physical office, therefore we can pay for it. And I think that's going to make it harder for small companies to hire remote workers who are who are going to be like, well, I can get this much better remote working package and maybe it'll include online training and other things. I think that's going to be one element. But then the other thing as well is, it's I, also b b b b before you move on from that um i i understand what you're saying and i think it's possible that large companies will do that i just don't agree that a lot of people um that it will press small businesses out of this stuff for the same reason that if you want to earn a bunch of money in our field what you do is you uh, ignore startups for the moment what you do is you go and work for a bank or something rather than a small company and get paid four times as much money and a lot of people choose not to do that and i think they will choose not to have the fantastic gaming chair and the fantastic new work from home environment if you're a programmer right it's already hard enough for small companies to hire programmers because Facebook and Google and Microsoft are, are paying such significant salary increases. I utterly if disagree you, with you. I think it's hard to hire them if you live where you do. No, it's hard to hire them in general. This I, is well known. I I don't agree with you. I, I certainly don't think that... I mean, if you look at um, the tech scene in Birmingham, I am really not seeing that many people not working for small companies because they're getting that sweet Google dollar. I'm really not. My, my point is, is that a company that can pay you more, give you a much better remote working setup, give you additional perks and benefits on top of that, such as education and self-directed learning and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be harder for small companies to be able to compete against that, right? I, I mean, I think it's to X point. I think what you're competing on from a recruiting perspective there isn't just the setup you can offer. It's if you're working at a small company, it tends to attract people who want to have an impact and feel like their work is different than at a hundred thousand person company. So it's recruiting is very difficult, and I don't know that that specific thing is is going to move the needle personally. But I would argue that for a lot of the, I I think a lot of company, a lot of people don't see. I think they see banks in the big 
behemoth company, but I don't think a lot of people see Facebook and Google and Microsoft and GitHub and places like that as a small company. I think because invariably they're working in smaller isolated teams. So it's almost like being in a startup in a big firm. But anyway, this is a whole separate conversation. It is. <laughs> it, we're, we're running low on time. Is there anything we want to cover before we wrap up? Uh, because this is a behemoth. Talk about behemoth. I was going to say segment. so much to unpack here that I'm trying to think if there is a specific aspect I think is important to cover and yet won't be a 45 minute conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm what I'm interested in is uh, people's thoughts on this. Not surprisingly, uh, we've now done two shows on coronavirus on the bounce, so we promise we're not going to do another one next time. Yeah, don't but, worry, we are not. But it's it's a huge topic and. Honestly, it pretty is. impactful topic as well. So yes. um, we wanted to take the time to drill into this, but we're really interested in what uh, you listening to this think. Do you think yeah. that um, we're going to see a fundamental step change in the way online events work or in the way that television works or in the way that working works? And what sort of what form do you think that's going to take? Do you think it's going to gradually ease back to normal are, are, are we imagining that 2025 will look roughly like 2015 or right. is this a permanent alteration how do you want it to work you know i'm really interested in uh people's thoughts well particularly as our community is from all over the world right and i mean yeah. I, I i i'm sure that there's going to be different views based upon you know what, where you're peering at this from. So go yes. and let us know in the, in the Slack channel. Uh, we don't do these really long mammoth segments very often. We're not going to talk about coronavirus. We won't have a mammoth show-long segment for the next show as well. <laughs> no. But one thing I think would be interesting, I do want to bring up, because I like to, one topic that we kind of just touch on in the show to try to foster some discussion is... This also brings up, and, and this is maybe because I work in the city specific to, to my thoughts, but I'm curious if other people have opinions here. Um, th do you think there'll be a long-term demographic change to, to cities given the current you know situation? So if you have an opinion about that, hop into Slack and uh, let's chat about it. Yeah, so so this, this is, if we do see lots and lots of people remote working, are we gradually going to see the population of cities decline or people or there being less competition for super expensive city center flats when everyone goes well no why wouldn't i live somewhere nice <laughs> well and the thing is as well as like if you think about that you know if, let's say you san francisco as an example you have a company that's based downtown people want to live nearby but then you've also got the salad shops and the coffee shops and the impact on them or because i bet with um with for example with just the with coronavirus the impact on like the lunchtime businesses and services has been has been impacted. Yeah. yeah, we'd love to hear what you think about all that. So that's a big, big, big subject. So, okay, all right, fellas, should we should we should we say goodbye to everybody? Yes, um, we will say goodbye to everybody, uh, including Marius, um, who we should say thank oh. you very much to for doing our editing as ever. Marius Quebec from Nerdzoom Media. Um, yes, thank you, Marius. Thank you. He, he, thank he's you. now Appreciate listening it. to this, complaining about the fact that I still haven't replaced the cable on my microphone, but I will do. I promise. <laughs> What kind of cable is it? What kind of cable is he telling you to get? It's it, it's just a box standard USB cable, but it's got one of the old um, trapezium shaped ends, and I haven't got any spares anymore. 
All right. So everybody, if if you could, don't don't go and dox him. But could you just put a US cable in the post and just write Birmingham on the no, front? No. Okay. No. He'll get it. Marius has mentioned this a couple of times, and I will fix it. I promise. Um, fortunately, it turns out there's no USB cables in Birmingham. No, no one, no one listening knows because he does such a good job of editing it out. Um, but yes. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. All right, take care, everyone. See you soon. Cheers.